This is going to be a long one today, so good thing we got started early. So this is another one of those miracles that uh, is probably very familiar to you. You've probably heard a uh, hundred sermons on it or more, and um, as always, my prayer is that we can learn something even though it's familiar even though it is uh an account that we have probably all read a number of times that there may be something that you didn't notice before something you didn't know before uh, and more than that something that would make you live a little bit more like christ out of this passage so without any further ado i'm going to ask you all to stand for our scripture today now you might notice that's a long passage for me. <clears throat> we shall see. Matthew 14, starting in verse 22. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to, the, to land at Gennesaret, and when they, the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment, and as many touched it were made well. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that it is your word that is heard, that it is your message for us that comes through. Father, I pray that we would be changed by encountering your son Christ today. And I pray this through him. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. So, I've said on a couple of different occasions that Matthew generally doesn't tend to be concerned with time, with the chronology, with, with this happened and then this happened and then this happened and then this happened, right? That's not really how Matthew approaches things. So that kind of makes the first word in this passage stick out a little bit. Because Matthew says, immediately something happened. Immediately, Jesus did something that might at first glance sound a little bit weird. He ordered the disciples to get into the boat and cross the Sea of Galilee, and then he dismissed the crowd. Why? He had just finished feeding them. It's not like they were going to turn on him and the disciples and have a riot, right? And this is a big crowd. Remember, we said it was somewhere between eight and 10,000 people. It's a big group of people. And immediately after they're done eating, and they collect up the 12 baskets of leftovers... 
Jesus says, okay, you guys, into the boat, go across the sea, the rest of y'all, go home. That just sounds kind of weird. It sounds kind of unusual for the way Jesus does things. Why would he do this? If you stick your finger right here in your Bible and flip over to John's Gospel, look for chapter 6 of John's Gospel. Once you find chapter 6, look at verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come, who is to come into the world. What sign are they talking about? Feeding everybody. So when the people had seen that, they declared, This is the prophet who is to come into the world. Verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So why did he send the crowd away? Why did he send the disciples away? Because after these 8,000 or 10,000, however many people, after these thousands of people watched him feed the crowd with two muffins and, or five muffins and two sardines, they suddenly declared that he must be the prophet who was to come. Who was the prophet who was to come into the world? It was supposed to be one in the spirit of Elijah. This is the same thing that Herod thought when he heard the things that Jesus was doing, that Jesus was John the Baptist, come back from the dead. No. More than just thinking he was the prophet, they were going to take him by force and make him king, whether he wanted to be or not. We talked this morning about how Jesus, through most of his ministry, up until that entry into Jerusalem, every time he did something that was big, like, I don't know, raising the dead, he told people, don't tell anybody. Well, here you've got thousands upon thousands of people that he had just fed with five muffins and two fish. It's going to be a little hard to say, don't tell anybody. That word's going to spread. And in fact, there were enough people in the crowd that had they decided, had they all got together of one mind, they would have carried Jesus bodily to Jerusalem. And so before they had the chance, before they turned into a mob, he sent the disciples away. Now, the disciples are people too, right? The disciples are the ones that were carrying the baskets. Remember how I said they they, they come back with the baskets full of leftovers and they're just like, I don't know what just happened. All we had was these five little and, and, and two little sardines and, and eh, I don't get it. They heard the people. They would have been part of the mob. They would have been ready to say, okay, let's let's go. He's this is this is the guy. So he sends them away too. And then he disperses the crowd before it can turn into a mob. And then Jesus did what Jesus always does. He went back up the mountain to pray. To have time alone with his father. Now, if you go back to Matthew, Matthew tells us that Jesus is alone when night falls. The disciples who are in the boat are far from him in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. 
Now, we talk a lot about the Sea of Galilee, but I want to help you draw the right picture in your head when you think the Sea of Galilee, okay? Because when I think sea, I think like Mediterranean Sea, Caribbean Sea, those are really big bodies of water. The Sea of Galilee is not. Number one, it's freshwater. Uh, It is a freshwater lake located in the northern part of Israel called Galilee, up there at the top. It connects to the Dead Sea by way of the Jordan River. Jordan River feeds it from the north and empties it from the south. From the northern end to the southern end, it's only 13 miles long. For a frame of reference, that's about from here to the Pass Road Pops Ferry intersection in Biloxi. That's your distance. That's that's how long it is. It's not a very long lake. Width-wise, it's 8.1 miles. That's not very big. Uh, The surface of the Sea of Galilee sits at an altitude of 680 feet below sea level. That's a long ways. The maximum depth of the Sea of Galilee is 200 feet. That's not super deep. Most of the sea is extremely shallow. The uh, surrounding area around the Sea of Galilee are mountains, some of them up to 2,000 feet high. So a little bit of a meteorological lesson, since we have a hurricane floating around out here in the Caribbean right now, going through the Straits of Florida and getting ready to go up the western coast. When you have a body of water that is below sea level, what is the climate around the surface of that body of water? Warm and tropical, actually. Warm and tropical. Very humid. Kind of, uh, well, kind of like it is here during the summertime. Without the breeze. Except, what is the climate on top of a mountain that's 2,000 feet tall? Cold and dry. And what happens when you have a front that is cold and dry and a front that is warm and moist and they come together, you have a storm. The Sea of Galilee is very well known for these kinds of storms. Now, I don't know how fast the disciples were going. We don't know. We were not told how long they had been rowing for. Uh, I found a couple of articles while I was doing some research on this. The boat that they were on was about 21 feet long. That's about it. Flat bottom with at most four oars. Two sets of two. That's it. It would have had a sail that they could use to move across the sea, uh, but it was flat bottom because most of the sea was so shallow. So it didn't have a deep keel. It was very, very, very flat, uh, which means it sat on top of the water, not in the water. What's the problem with that? Little unstable, and when the wind blows, you ever seen a leaf sitting on top of the water? What happens to it? It gets blown along with the wind, right? 
So we don't know how far they were going. We do know, if you look at verse 34, um, where it says that they crossed over to Genesaret, we do know that they were traveling from east to west because Genesaret is on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. So they were headed west. So there's wind blowing out of the west. We call that the prevailing wind, right? The prevailing wind is blowing this way. So there's already a wind coming that's just the prevailing breeze. And then you have cold air, dry air that tends to sink down the mountain that hits that warm air that's moist and tends to rise, which causes even more wind. And then you have a storm whip up and all these waves and 12 men on a boat with four of them pulling at the oars, trying to get the boat across the water. The headwind was so strong that they were stationary. The Sea of Galilee actually has storm systems that are as strong as some of the tropical storms and Category 1 hurricanes that we have in the Atlantic and the Gulf of Mexico. That's the kind of winds that we're talking about. On 13 by 8 miles of water. And they're going across the 8 mile portion. They're just trying to make it. 8 miles. And they're stuck. For every pull on those oars, there's a gust of wind that pushes them right back to where they were. So they're essentially paddling stationary. They're not moving. Matthew says in the fourth watch of the night, right? In uh, verse 25, in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Imagine that picture. Okay, the fourth watch of the night is somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. And if you look at the other Gospels where this account is, you see that it's probably closer to the 6 a.m. So if they left around dusk, we'll call it late dusk, maybe nightfall, so they left around 9 p.m. Here we are between 3 and 6 in the morning, probably closer to the 3 o'clock side. So we're looking at 6, 7, 8, 9 hours. These guys have been pulling on the oars, and they're stuck in the middle of the lake and then out of nowhere they see somebody walking up to them catching up with them Matthew apparently has the gift of understatement because he says when the disciples saw him walking on the sea they were terrified Very, very deadpan. They were terrified. I don't think that's a strong enough word. I don't know that there is a strong enough word. They assumed, and I would too, that there must be a spirit or something chasing after them. Now, yesterday, Warren and I had a little bit of a chuckle. We went to Edgewater Mall yesterday at 1 o'clock. They had uh, the, the folks from the Auburn University Raptor Center brought some of their birds down to the mall and did a little show. 
They had uh, a screech owl, about yo tall. They had a barn owl. They had a, a swallow-tailed kite. They had a red-tailed hawk. They had a peregrine falcon, and they had a bald eagle. All rescues, all animals that had been rescued. They were talking about the barn owl, and this this is what stuck in my head when they were talking about the barn owl. It's sometimes called the ghost owl. You know why? Because it hangs around abandoned buildings and barns. It flies silently, makes no noise. It does not hoot or coo, but emits a hissing sound. And its underbelly is bright white. So as the guy's saying this, I could just picture in my head walking through an abandoned building after dark. I don't know why you would do this. Okay? And having this bright white apparition come out of the rafters and go as it flies over you. I'd have a stroke. And as I'm putting this picture together, I'm thinking, what did the disciples think as they are on the sea? Now, they're paddling, they're, they're moving the boat from east to west. Which means, if they're smart, the ones that are rowing are facing east. Because you pull, you get better leverage, and the boat's going that way. So at least four of them are watching where they came from. In this storm, with this boat, this flat-bottom boat, that is up and down and being tossed all over the place, and it's not moving. And out of nowhere, they see... Jesus. I'd have a heart attack. That's why I said I don't think terrified is a strong enough word. It says they cried out in fear. They were probably cowering in the bottom of the boat. Terrified. When we get a picture of Jesus in His holiness, in His power, our response is terror. Over and over and over and over and over in Scripture, anytime either an angel shows up, or the Spirit of the Lord shows up, or even after His resurrection when Jesus shows up, the very first words that are spoken are, Do not be afraid. Because our natural reaction when we come face to face with the power of God is terror. Now, the disciples are a little bit slow, just a little. Think back to what they had just experienced before they left. Now, granted, they're tired. They've been rowing all night and they haven't gotten anywhere. But think about what they had just gone through on the shore. He just fed thousands of people with those five loaves and two fish. That little bit of food just fed all them people. And they carried back 12 basketfuls of leftovers. There really shouldn't be a whole lot more that Jesus could do that would surprise them. Except... 
Jesus catches up with the boat. And he sees them. I don't know if he heard them. I don't know if he saw the expression on their face. Probably easy to see because they would have all been ghostly white from lack of blood flowing to their head from the shock, right? And he responds the way Jesus does. Be of good cheer. Don't be afraid. It's me. Because that makes it better. Hey, Jesus, you might not have noticed, but you're walking across the top of the lake in a storm. This isn't helping matters any. Now, before I go any further in Matthew, I have to, I have to talk some more about John's gospel. Um, of the four gospels, John's probably my favorite. Uh, that, that might be a bad thing, but John's probably my favorite. Uh, John focuses on Jesus' uh, identity as God. And in John's gospel, not just this passage, not just chapter 6 like we looked at, but John records for us in, in his gospel a series of statements that Jesus makes. They're called the I Am statements. And you can probably think of a few of them. Where Jesus says, um, I am the bread of life, I am the good shepherd, I am the door, I am the true vine, right? You know what I'm talking about? Matthew, Mark, and Luke mention a couple of them. But John, according to most scholars, John lists seven of these statements in his gospel. And they're powerful. I mean, we, we learn a lot about the identity of Jesus and the work of Jesus when he calls himself the bread of life. And he calls himself the vine, and we are the branches. And he calls himself the good shepherd. There's a, a lot of power in those metaphors that he uses. And that's just in English. But being who I am, the word nerd, the guy who likes to know what's underneath the English text, the Greek word construction is a little bit odd in those phrases. In John's Gospel, when, when you read one of those, I am the good shepherd, the Greek words that are translated as I am, there are two Greek words there. The first word is ego or ego, right? Which we consider to be a person's personality. That is the, the definition of ego. So the first word is ego, and the second word is emi. The two words together both mean I, me, first person. So in the Greek, it would be I, I am. It's like Jesus is stuttering. Everywhere John records Jesus saying, I am, fill in the rest of the metaphor, it is those words, ego, emi. We talked this morning a little bit about Alexander the Great and, and his process of conquering the known world before he turned 30 years old. Um, during his reign, there was a period under which he ruled over Palestine. And as part of that process, he was in, in, the, in the process of Hellenization. Hellenization is where he was converting everybody to a common language. That language was Greek. 
That's why the New Testament's written in Greek. Because Greek was the trade language. Everybody spoke Greek. And in that process, there were a group of approximately 70 rabbis, 70 Bible scholars, Hebrew scholars, that were tasked with translating the Hebrew scriptures into Greek. Because he wanted all the Jews to speak Greek, not Hebrew. So we call this the Septuagint. If you ever read in your Bible and you look in the little footnotes down below and you see where it says LXX, anybody remember your Roman numerals? What's LXX? 70. That stands for those 70 scholars, which means it is the Septuagint. So it's referring to that Greek translation of the Hebrew text. In the Torah, in Exodus chapter 3, the account of the burning bush, a little bit of background just in case you've forgotten how this plays out. Moses has grown up as a prince in the royal household of Egypt. He turns 40 years old and he sees a Egyptian taskmaster beating on a Hebrew slave. And he snaps and he kills that taskmaster buries him in the sand, and runs off to the backside of the Midianite desert. I love that picture. Deserts are bad enough. He went to the backside of the desert. And for 40 years, he worked for his father-in-law, herding sheep in the backside of the Midianite desert. Until one day when he's minding his own business, and all of a sudden, he hears somebody call to him, Moses, Moses. And as he's looking around... He sees a bush that is burning but not consumed. I've been in the desert too long. And the bush calls him over, and as he approaches, the voice says, take your shoes off your feet because you're standing on holy ground. So he talks with this burning bush, and God tells him, you're going to go deliver my people from their captivity. Well, I can't do that. I've got a speech impediment. Seriously? You're talking to a burning bush. Speech impediment's not a problem. Stick your hand in your shirt. Sticks his hand in his shirt, pulls it back out. It's covered with leprosy. Put it back. Now it's healed. Okay, good. Throw your staff on the ground. Throws it on the ground, it's a snake. Pick it back up. Now it's a stick. I would have done that for hours. I'm just being honest with you. I would have I done that for an hour. It's a snake, it's a stick, it's a snake, it's a stick. That just sounds like fun. But then Moses says, if I go to your people and they ask who has sent me, what will I tell them? In other words, what is your name? To which God replies, I am that I am. Now that is where we get Yahweh. The Hebrew letters that translate into English, Y-H-W-H, the tetragrammaton, if you want the technical term for it, Yahweh, means I am that I am. That's Hebrew. Okay? When those 70 scholars translated the Hebrew, Yahweh, into Greek, I am that I am, they translated it into... Two Greek words, 
Ego emi. Do you follow that train of thought now? I, I am. The same construction that Jesus uses when he says, I am the good shepherd. I am the bread of life. See, for all those people who say, well, Jesus never really claims to be God. Yes, he does. Seven times at the very least in the Gospel of John. But here's the cool part. When Jesus says back in Matthew, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid, that it is I, guess what the Greek words are? Ego imi. It's the same construction. I am that I am. Don't be afraid. Why should the disciples not be afraid? I am that I am. Because God's with them. God is here. God is in control. We are at a point in time right now today in the United States where there is a state just over there that is wondering where God is. There's another state over there two weeks ago that was asking the same question. And then you got those states up there in the West that are asking that question as they're on fire. And then there's the folks in Mexico that are asking the question because of the earthquake. And there's the folks over in the Pacific that are asking the question because of that crazy little guy in North Korea who keeps threatening to shoot nukes at the big guy on the block. Where's God? Jesus' answer is, don't be afraid. I am that I am. None of this is taking God by surprise. None of this out, is outside of his notice. None of this escapes his purpose. He's in control. That's a hard thing for us to wrap our heads around. And I'm not trying to throw false comfort at you guys. The disciples were afraid. We can be afraid, but we can't lose faith that God's in control. Now, my favorite disciple, verse 28, Peter the impetuous, Lord, if it really is you, command me to come out on the water. Okay, where did that come from? Let, let me translate that. Jesus says, don't be afraid, it's me. Calm down, guys. And Peter says, prove it. He just fed the thousands with five muffins and two sardines, and Peter says, prove it. So Jesus says, okay, come on, walk to me. Okay, and Peter does. Now Peter gets a lot of a hard time for this, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to abuse him a little bit here as we get a little bit further on. But Peter takes a step of faith. He gets out of the boat. The 11 other disciples, we aren't told this, but I, Peter's the only one that spoke up. I can see the other 11 
are hanging onto the boat for dear life because it's still being tossed by the winds and the waves. And Peter did. He got out of the boat. He got out of the boat and he started walking to Jesus. I can, I can see this plane. I'm walking on the lake. I'm, I'm walking to Jesus. I'm walking. Boy, it's windy out here. Why? I am standing on water. People can't stand on water. This is not a good idea. Jesus, I'm starting to sink. Matthew tells us that when he took his eyes off of Jesus and he saw the storm whipping around him, he saw the wind. Now, I like that. He saw the wind. Either God gave Peter some miraculous vision or we're talking about the strength of the storm. A tropical storm. Peter got out of the boat, and then it dawned on him. This is like every Roadrunner, Wiley Coyote cartoon ever, right? The coyote runs off the edge of the cliff, and it's not until he stops and looks around that he realizes, ruh row. and then he falls to his death, but he never dies. He falls to that splat on the ground. He started to sink into the waves. His faith... While it was great, it was brief. It was brief because it was based on what he could physically see at the time. He saw Jesus. He heard Jesus. So I have the faith. If you command me to come out of the boat, I'm going to come out of the boat. But the minute he stopped seeing Jesus, his faith fell apart. That's when he started to sink into the waves. And whether he did this out of panic or whether he did this out of that faith, I don't know, but he did the smartest thing that Peter could do at that point in time. Yes. Jesus, help. Save me. Hosanna. Hard to believe, but that's what that word means. And Jesus did. Now, let me read this again. At the end of verse 30, Lord, save me. 31, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him. And then they got into the boat, right? No. No. Then Jesus said, oh, you of little little faith, why did you doubt? And then they got into the boat. Jesus, save me. Okay. Come on, get back up on the water. All right, I've got you. Now, why did you doubt? They're still not in the boat. Peter's in the same circumstance he was before. Standing in the midst of the storm. That's when Jesus says, why did you doubt? It's not when he was back in a situation where he was protected. It's not when he's in a situation where there's no more storm. In the middle of the storm, Jesus says, why did you doubt? How many times do we go through stuff? We cry out, Jesus, save me. But we don't bother to listen to him say, why did you doubt? We never hear Peter's answer. We don't know if Peter even did answer. 
What we do know is Jesus put them both in the boat. Isn't this the way we do things? We cry out to God to tell us what to do, and then we look at the things that we have to face when we do them, and we falter. God, tell me what your will is. Well, I'd really like you to go to share the gospel with your neighbor, but then he's going to slam the door in my face, and I know that he doesn't really care for religion because he's out on his front porch drinking all the time, and the blah, and the blah, and the blah, and the blah, and the blah. You just told me what to do. Now I'm going to argue with you and tell you all the reasons why I can't do it. That's what Peter did. Lord, if that's you, tell me to get out of the boat. All right, I'll get out of the boat, but now I need you to save me because there's too big of a storm. We cry out, and God's still there to save us. Who was it that became distracted and caused Peter to sink? It was Peter. It wasn't Jesus. It's not, Jesus wasn't standing over here when Peter says, all right, if it's you, Lord, tell me to get out of the boat and come to you. Jesus says, come on, and then looks away for a minute, and all of a sudden, Peter's not able to walk on the water. When Peter cries out, Jesus didn't have to go, oh, hey, sorry. I got distracted. No, when Peter cried out, Jesus was there. He was ready. It was because Peter's faith was based on what he could see. On what he was looking at. When he called out, Jesus was there ready to take his hand. When will we learn that lesson. I say we because I'm included in this crowd. I am I am just as just as prone to doing the same thing. God, tell me where you want me to go. I want you to go over there. But over there there's a lot of bad stuff. And it's gonna be hard. And I don't really want to go through that. Do I have to? At least Peter had the sense to cry out for Jesus to save him once he started sinking. Do we have that same sense? Now, we come to the end of the passage. At our prayer time this morning, Dave asked me what I was going to do with this last little paragraph that's like tacked on to chapter 14, doesn't really have anything to do with anything. Right? They get to the other side because Jesus gets in the boat and what happens? The storm stops. The storm stops. And it was at that point that those that were in the boat worshiped Jesus for who he was. Now, I really don't know if they had a full idea of who Jesus was or not, but they said he's truly the Son of God. Okay. Maybe they're starting to get an idea that he's more than just somebody who's going to take the throne. Maybe they're starting to get an idea. I don't think so. But this is one of those times where they get a picture, a glimpse of how Jesus is different than us. Now, 
The boat arrives on the western shore at Gennesaret, or Gennesaret, depending on which way you pronounce it. The boat arrives, the people on land realize who Jesus is. They sent around to all that region, they brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment, and as many touched it were made well. When they realized who Jesus was, they sent a messenger around to all the towns in that area, bring out your sick, bring out your lame, bring out your blind, bring out your demon-possessed, bring out everybody who's afflicted. And then they came to Jesus and said, look, we know who you are. Just let the people touch the fringe of your cloak and they'll be healed. So there's a contrast in faith between Peter and these people in this town. I think that's why Matthew put this here. I think that's why the Holy Spirit inspired him to put this here. It's because Peter's faith was based on what he could see and what he was looking at. These people knew all it takes is to touch the hem of his robe and these people will be healed. The woman who had the issue of blood for 12 years, she knew that if she could get close enough, Jesus never promised that. There is absolutely nowhere in Scripture, nowhere in Scripture, let, let me say that again. Nowhere in Scripture that there is a principle shown that if a person touches a piece of cloth that has come from one who is holy, that they will be saved. Contrary to all those things that you get in the mail, where if you send them $20, they will mail you a prayer carpet or whatever, there is no place in Scripture that that is said. Where did they get the idea? They had faith that Jesus could heal them. They didn't know how. They didn't understand the mechanics of it. <coughs> they just knew that if they got close enough, they would be healed. Peter learned that if he kept his eyes on Jesus, he could make it. But as soon as he saw how big his storm was, he faltered. There's a contrast in the faith there. Now I've got to ask the hard question. When you are in the middle of a storm like that, when you are in the middle of the winds and the waves and your boat being pushed backwards and you're not making any progress, what are you looking at? You're looking at circumstance. And I know it's hard. 
I know it's hard not to look at circumstance. I know it's hard not to wonder how I'm going to get through this. I, I get it. Been there, done that, got the t-shirt. What we learned from Peter is that we need not look at our circumstance. We need to focus on the one who's there. And if you forget that Jesus is God, that Jesus has that power, I want you to just remember those two words, ego, emi. Jesus says it in the book of John eight times, contrary to all your Bible commentators, he says it eight times in the book of John. And the eighth time is when the disciples are in a crisis. I am. He created the universe. One of the best things about John's gospel is chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was... The Word was with God and the Word was God. Fast forward just a couple of verses and we know that Jesus is the Word. John also says that nothing was made that was made without Him. And if it was made, then He made it. That's kind of a hard construction. If He created everything that you see, Everything that you are. If he is, I am that I am. Do you trust that he can get you through the circumstance? That's right. Do you know that if you just get close enough to him to touch the fringe? Now, you notice it wasn't even touch him. It was to touch the fringe of his cloak. You get close enough just to touch the fringe of his identity, of who he was. It doesn't guarantee healing on this side of eternity. It doesn't guarantee wealth on this side of eternity. It doesn't even guarantee that you're going to make it out of this alive. In fact, Scripture tells us that none of us make it out of this alive. Death is appointed... For everybody except Jesus. He died too. He's the only guy who escaped it. But. Through his life. Through his death. And through his resurrection. We have the promise. That death will not hold us. That we will be united with him. That's what we need to keep in our eyes. When we face struggle.